Hey, welcome back, everyone. Uh, you got the partner in charge of Willie Penn's Houston office, Nathan McGowan, on location in Dallas uh, for our second installment of Whitley Penn's Energy Executive Profile. Uh, this time we have uh, two folks on for us, um, the co-CEOs of Driftwood Energy. Uh, excited to have them on and uh, excited to share a little bit about their personalities, talk a little bit about the industry, uh, a lot about themselves and uh, get a perspective on, on who they are and, and what makes them who they are. Uh, but big shout out to Danny Hughes for uh, our, the intro music. He's the Whitley Penn resident DJ. Uh, audit senior manager by day and DCPA by night. So thanks for the uh, the music, Danny. Uh, we appreciate it. So here we are, uh, Kenny and Mickey. Can you guys give us a, a quick intro of yourselves and, and a little background on Driftwood Energy? Uh, yeah, Kenny Worrell. Um, I'm, I wish uh, I got to hear Danny's song. It sounds like it was a great one. I'll listen to it on the way back. Um, <laughs> So, uh, co-CEO of Driftwood Energy, um, grew up in Midland, um, finance background, and uh, sort of the de facto CFO, uh, in addition to co-CEO of Driftwood. We got started uh, in late 2017 and have um, put together an acreage position in the Midland Basin in Upton and Reagan counties and have been uh, prosecuting a drilling program over the last 12 months. and. Um, you know, excited about sort of bringing some enthusiasm back to that area of the world um, and, you know, formed the company with a few great partners, including Mickey here. So I'll pass it off to him to give a little bit of his background. Yeah, thanks, Kenny. Uh, as Nathan said, my name is Mickey Frederick. And, uh, you know, along with helping to lead Driftwood with Kenny and the other partners, uh, I am our uh, chief engineer, I guess, uh, along with another guy, Nick. And uh, my background is in completions and reservoir. I started in the industry in the early 2000s. Uh, have gotten to see some interesting things along the way. Uh, spent a significant part of my career in the middle part at Pioneer Natural Resources, where I uh, got to be on the ground floor for the you know, revitalization of the Midland Basin and all the horizontal activity we've seen out there. And that's where I first started work in the area that we're at now uh, in the Southern Midland Basin and later joined up with Kenny, as he mentioned, and are having a blast right now uh, building out driftwood in the Southern Midland Basin. Perfect, thanks gentlemen. Um, so, you know, before we get started, Kenny, I have to say, um, I gotta talk about the elephant in the room, and, and that is, uh, <laughs> you know, a little, little bit hurt by uh, recently. Kenny and myself, we're, we're every, every year for the last five, six years, we, uh, we, we are in this group of about 40 guys that do a Calcutta for um, March Madness, great thing. Basically, you auction off all the teams. A lot of fun. Uh, makes every game interesting. But um, you know, me being the tech homer I am, I've had you know every year that tech's in the tournament, you know, I've been able to, to 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 get them in the auction. And this year, Kenny and I went head to head, and and you took them, and they went all the way to the national championship. So it's going to be a while before I forget that. Well, I'm a Longhorn, and uh, we obviously weren't in the tournament, although we were NIT champs. So. That's something to build on. Is, is uh, it? Is it? Yeah, okay, it's something. Um, but Tech did win me a ton of money in that deal. I, I can't say what possessed me to take them, but it obviously was profitable. And I won't disclose the dollar amount that they choked away um, in that national championship game. But uh, 
I think the important part of that was that you uh, even sported tech gear for a few weekends. Oh, I, I, I did. I had a tech vest and a tech hat. I was all in. I'm, I'm a practical guy. Um, my motivations are pretty black and white. I like money. <laughs> he, did, he did have the Bob Knight look going on for a few days there in March. Man, I, I saw a picture, so I believe it. And that, that's anytime I can get a, a UT here and some tech gear, uh, you know, that was almost worth not, not having a team. But, you know, I'll, I'll, I digress. I'll, I'll let that go. Um, so before we get started, a little fact or fiction. There's a few things I've heard about both of you, and uh, I think they're very interesting. And I'd love to get some background. Is it true? Is this a myth? Is this lore? But uh, first, Kenny. So I heard you're some national Excel modeling winner. I mean, what's the tr- what is the story here? Well, it's actually, let's get it right, it's global. Uh, so there's a uh, Excel financial modeling contest every year. And about five or six years ago, kind of as a joke, I entered it. It's like 20 bucks to enter. And um, you do a couple preliminary rounds online. Um, you have two hours to build four financial models that are pretty complicated. Most people don't finish. And uh, if you, you know, after the sort of semifinal round, if you're in the top 16 in the world, they fly you to London. To, uh, to compete against the best in the world. So a few years ago, I, <laughs> I flew to London, one of only three Americans against uh, 13 other uh, competitors in the world to do a uh, sort of live Excel competition against, uh, against these guys in front of, I don't know, a few hundred people at uh, this global Microsoft Excel conference. So probably the nerdiest thing in my repertoire, but at one point in my life, I was rated as the number one financial modeler in the United States. I think right now, they still post their world rankings. I think right now I'm around 30 in the world or something, so. I mean, what kind of dark web do you even find those rankings on? Uh, I think it's modeloff.com. You can you can go find me there. Um, but uh, I, I bet their traffic is pretty low relative to the rest <laughs> of the internet. So um, many questions there. I can only imagine the after parties after that competition in London. It was uh, uh, pretty we, wild. Actually, times. our, our uh, icebreaker event pre-event was go karts. So oh, okay. that tells you anything about how okay. lit it was. <laughs> well, it's okay. So that's true. So I heard. I can't even remember how I heard that, but to to find out that's true is is is, is interesting, and I'm glad. So Mickey, yours. I love. Um, you know, we'll talk about you know your your background and colleges that you attended. But one thing that's very interesting to me is um, so you have a master's in seminary. So kind of talk to us about that and how did you get into it? Like how do you use that? And you know, I heard of it because you know I heard you're a really great public speaker, and they tied it into you know you you know really you know the sermon side and being able to capture a crowd. And, and uh, so just tell us more about that. Well, thanks, Andy. Yeah, that's it. It is true. And uh, to tell the truth, whenever I got out of college in the early 2000s, um, I loved engineering, but I just wanted to do something, quote, uh, important or meaningful with my life. And to me, that meant going into ministry, whatever that looked like serving others. And But I had college loans, so I went to the oil field, which I had always loved and kind of wanted to go into as well, in order to pay off my college loans. And uh, But while I was working in the oil field, I was chasing a frat crew as an engineer and had a lot of downtime sitting there staring at a, at a rig or a frat crew. And so I was able to go to the seminary full time while working in the oil field and, and all that downtime, I was able to sit there and read books, write papers and, and do all that. And uh, lo and behold, five years later, we're living in Houston, I'm married 
and I finished my seminary degree, which I was able to continue pursuing full time during that uh, entire period. And it's, it's funny how calls or, or objectives change and morph. Um, that was still a very important part of our life, but I'd also absorbed a love for the oil field as well and the people that are in it. And so it's, you know, as you mentioned, there's benefits from being able to do a little bit of speaking or, or leadership stuff. It, it relays really well into the professional world, but also I think having a, a greater why, I, I know why I get up and come to work, you know, still my wife and I are still very involved at our, at our church and in our community, just doing different things to give back and, and try to serve others. Um, and I, I think it's done, you know, that single calling evolved into a dual calling, which is, you know, still a single life focus of just trying to excel in the business world. And that looks like oil and gas and take advantage of all the opportunity there and also steward all my breaths well while I'm away from uh, the Driftwood office um, to just kind of give back and serve others. So no, that's great. That's uh, definitely you don't see that probably on too many uh, CEOs resumes. So. Uh, you know, I always love to find out what people's passions are outside of their day to day, and you know, for uh, to, to get that background is, is very interesting and intriguing, and uh, I'm sure served you well and, and those around you. Um, so let's go to the beginning. You know, um, Kenny, you know, you told me you grew up in Midland. Tell us a little bit about that. Sounds like it's a really heavy energy family. You know, what did that mean to you, and how did that kind of shape your your, your future? Yeah, well, obviously Midland being sort of the uh, U.S. hub for oil and gas, despite the size of the town, it's, it's changed a lot, obviously, since I grew up. But uh, two parents who are petroleum engineers, both went to Colorado School of Mines. Brother, who's a petroleum engineer, graduated from UT. And I was the black sheep of the family that uh, went and got a finance degree um, from UT. But when I had the options coming out of school, seemed logical to me to go into the energy business and since then i've also got a sister that uh is in the energy business or as an accountant so when we go to nape it's a little strange whenever you show up at one of the happy hours the tph happy hour and there's five name tags laid out for the uh rural family but uh you know it's great there's always something to talk about uh family outings even if my wife and probably everyone else not affiliated gets tired of it so um, natural fit and obviously back in Midland all the time one of the jokes I like to make is we've got the best hotel in Midland and the cheapest by far um, which is my parents house and every one of the Driftwood partners has uh, gotten to experience the luxury of a home-cooked meal from uh, Shelly Whirl. So having two parents that are engineers I mean do they are you talking about what you're doing do you bounce things off them are they just poking you for kind of what's going on like how does that how does that work uh depends on what we're talking about most of the time yes it's nice to have a nice sounding board uh other times there's been at least two or three times where we're looking at deals that they're selling looking at deals that they're bidding on um so we sometimes have to keep it tight and i think they have to keep it tight within even their own uh marriage there but uh, <laughs> it keeps things interesting for sure awesome um, so what about you, Mickey? Uh, where, where'd you grow up? How'd you, you know, get into the energy industry? Absolutely. Yeah, I grew up in Western Oklahoma uh, in what I thought was a, a large town at the time, Clinton, Oklahoma. We had about 9,000 people. And for Western Oklahoma, it was pretty big, but compared to any other real city in the world, it's pretty small. But I grew up, um, you know, my grandparents were farmers and ranchers and I grew up working on, on different farms growing up and spent most of my time in the country and was around a lot of oil and gas activity. But of course, as a, as a youth, never got a chance to really work in it. But I love machines, machinery, 
all things mechanical and that led to the engineering degree. And so whenever I graduated, it was a natural, you know, it's funny, whenever I graduated college, the last thing I wanted to do was live in a city and wear a tie to work every day. And so I was able to go out to Western Oklahoma, uh, frack a lot of wells out there and do other well work. Uh, but then two years later, I ended up living in Houston, wearing a tie to work every, most, most every day. And it's just funny how marriage will change a person's priorities. Um, but that, it just kind of, there was a mystique around the oil field growing up of not knowing what was going on, but knowing that there was a lot of excitement and energy around it and you can make a pretty good living. And so that's, those are many of the reasons why I was drawn into oil and gas. Great, great. And so, Mickey, I got to admit, I mean, I, I'm looking at your resume, and uh, I think you went to 50% of the Big 12 schools at some point. How many degrees do you have? Walk us through kind of the uh, the evolution of, you know, all your master's and your, your undergrad degrees and the kind of schools you attended. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's a, there's a story behind each one of them, um, but I've, I've taken an unconventional route my whole time during oil and gas, and that explains part of, of the extra college that I got to attend. Uh, part of it is I just needed extra instruction in different areas of life. But uh, the funny thing is I even started out going to the Air Force Academy, and I was there for two years in college. Uh, Bill Clinton upped the pilot commitment to something like 14 years, and I wasn't ready as a 20-year-old to commit the next 14 years, years of my life to fly the government's airplanes. And so I bailed out, went to Oklahoma State, ended up with an engineering degree there, uh, biosystems engineering, or, or you know, there's a mechanical degree but focused on uh, agriculture. And then I uh, did the seminary thing, and then whenever I graduated from there, I ended up at Pioneer. And uh, I'd done, gotten my professional engineering degree, so I knew that I liked some of the academic sides of reservoir engineering, but at Pioneer it was difficult to branch out from, I came into Pioneer as a completion engineer because I worked my way up through the field, and it's difficult to go into the different engineering branches without a petroleum engineering degree. Uh, but there were things in reservoir engineering and other branches that I knew how to do and I was able to do, but I kind of needed a, a degree to, uh, one, be able to practice in those areas, and two, just to be able to go deeper in those areas. And so I went to Texas A&M, used a, a remote program that they have where busy professionals are able to join the college classes while they're going on, the master's level classes, but you just join in through a webcam and uh, are able to do the classes there. Same instructor, same material. Uh, the coursework is, the, the tests are still timed and you're under the same constraints as the students in class. And so that was a great experience, met some great people, uh, learned some great information and got that master's of engineering from Texas A&M. Uh, it served me well and things I was able to do with it. And about that same time, I started to realize some of the limitations of, you know, the engineering technical toolkits that we have to be able to predict what we're, what, what we're doing in the field and be able to drive business decisions. And I started to realize like Kenny's known for, from his undergrad years, it all revolves around the dollar. It, it's, it's a business at the beginning and the end of the day. And if we're not making money, it doesn't matter how much oil that we're making. And a lot of the decisions that, we, you know, that I saw being made well and being made poorly re revolved around the business side of the business. And I was intrigued by it. So I went back and got an MBA in energy from OU, another unconventional type program where a third of the degree was on campus and a third was walking through these classes that we all access remotely, uh, but with a cohort. And so there was still a, a class aspect, there was still constant communication and, and discussion, uh, but it was in a little bit unconventional format to meet the needs of, of professionals that were located all around the world. And so just like at Texas A&M with that degree program, I was doing projects with guys that were offshore and guys that were in Saudi Arabia through the EMBA program or the MBA program at OU. 
um, I was getting to talk to people that were every day facing real life business challenges and getting to hear their stories of how they were applying what we were learning on a day-to-day basis. So um, that was also a, a fun program that I went through and uh, pretty much did everything straight through. I didn't take much time off, you know, from high school all the way through those master's degrees. And by the end, my oldest daughter and wife pretty much made me swear that I was not going to do any more school and I was ready to throw in the towel at that point. <laughs> I was gonna. I was about to say, your wife must be a saint, um, and because I can only imagine the hours at work and school and and uh, to support you through that was. was uh, she must be an awesome lady. Um, so you know, A and M, OSU, OU. Okay, they're playing. I mean, you're still rooting for OSU, right? You know, I have to. Um, now, my wife and her family are all Sooner fans. And, you know, in Oklahoma, that's a big, big divide. Mm-hmm. The fact that I went to OSU and then later OU, that's kind of a scandal, at least in my <laughs> side of the family. Yeah. Um, but my wife and her family have swayed our kids to be Sooner fans. And so I, I have to, um, you know, kind of our mantra is everything but UT, which okay. creates okay. some friction okay. with you know, with I, I, can board board I can jump on board with that. I can jump on board with that. You know, and okay. I've got two extra tickets to the orange side of the – stadium this year if you want them, Mickey. Yeah, uh, you know, we can talk about that. <laughs> I think, you know, Carnelian might have an issue there, too. They're all UT guys. But. Absolutely. That's why, that's why we wanted to partner with them. That's right. Well, and the, the good thing has been the several past several years, you haven't even had to talk any trash about Texas. You just read the headlines, and that does all the talking you need. But one of these days, they might start winning again, and I might have to pull out some trash talk. Yeah, I mean, they are flying that, uh, what, NIT banner, you said? I mean, that's... Yeah, hey, MIT champs. That's right, that's right. <laughs> but they made the they made the playoff they made the bowl games last year, which they haven't always uh, okay. been able to say in okay. the past right. several years. So. Well, you know, no matter what they do, they're still ranked in the top twenty five coming out of the year. So that makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, number ten, I think. Um, but okay, Kenny, tell about yourself. You know, you come out of UT, uh, you go into investment banking, you know, what's that like? Are you straight into energy when you do the investment banking? Yeah, so I well, um, I have one degree, not not as many as Mickey, uh, but came straight out, started working for Barclays uh, Capital in Houston right around, right after the, the financial crisis. And so the name was changing on the door from Lehman Brothers to Barclays. It was an energy focused group. Um, and at the time we were doing a ton of business for, you know, a lot of companies that needed capital. In addition to EMPs, you know, there was a, compared to now, certainly a lot more, um, you know, MLPs and midstream capital required. and doing a lot of that stuff. Um, and after a couple of years there, I left, went to Natural Gas Partners um, and spent a couple of years there. Um, and, you know, great experience, obviously, from the investing side of the table and helpful now being on sort of the portfolio side of things to kind of have had that experience. But even now, the environment's a lot different than it was, you know, eight, nine, 10 years ago. Um, but from there, you know, got to know a lot of the, uh, portfolio company guys well, knew the RSP Permian folks from having been in Midland, um, from growing up in Midland and, and uh, you know, the CEO and CEO and a couple of those folks are Midland folks. And so jumped over to RSP from NGP and, and got my first taste of sort of being at an operating company. And that has sort of led me to this point to where, you know, I kind of prefer being on the operating company side versus the high finance side. Um, although obviously know and love a lot of guys still on, on the high finance side, but that's kind of how I wandered my way over here. Yeah, and, and to, so how long were you at NGP? Uh, two years. And so, uh, you know, what are some some of the key relationships? I mean, obviously, really well respected, um, you know, private equity energy group, and 
Uh, I'm sure you got to work with a lot of great portfolio companies, but within NGP, some of the who are the, some of the key relationships that you still kind of talk to today and, and um, that you hold from that that time. Yeah, well, I mean, the uh, you know our current sponsors, obviously from Carnelian, we're former natural gas partners guys, um, and so I worked with both of the Carnelian founders pretty frequently while I was at NGP on a lot of the Permian stuff that we were doing at the time, um, which was a lot different uh, back in you know 2012. We were doing vertical wells and, and wasn't quite what it is today. Um, and so got to know them well, and that's sort of part of the reason we sought them out when we were looking for uh, funding for this venture. Um, and then, you know, I think the interesting thing of what's happened at NGP is, you know, they've it had some folks depart, but obviously, you know, some, some folks get um, promoted up. And so Chris Carter is one guy that I, you know, still respect a ton over there that I worked with a lot on RSP and other things. And obviously he's, he's taken on a larger role at NGP, but I think it's, been interesting to see you know how the private equity landscape has changed with you know all these different firms popping up and you know and, and a lot of guys that are you know sort of in the younger younger stage kind of taking significant roles and so you know I think it's it's all good for the industry and I think uh, maybe we'll get into it later but you know it seems like also there's a lot of evolution happening now as we see what the current oil and gas landscape looks like. No, oh, that's right. And uh, Mickey, what about you? So you're at Pioneer, this massive company. It's exploding. Um, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of comforts of being at a big, growing public company like that, and then a lot of perks. And then, you know, you get this um, idea to switch to a, a startup. You know, what's that thought process? What are the concerns? What are the excitements? How did you kind of digest that? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, one constant theme at Pioneer is the people were phenomenal. Just the, the people and the way that they took care of people at Pioneer was unlike any company I've ever seen. And so it was a great place to be, like you mentioned. Um, the challenge, there were many challenges that came about, you know, first with the Eagle Fruit at Pioneer. And then as the culture continued to change, as, as Pioneer modernized the West, West Texas business unit into the horizontal development unit that it is now, um, you know, the pace increased, but that's fine. That's the world that we live in. Um, the things that we were able to do were great, but whenever I started at Pioneer at, in 2010, um, it, we were drilling several, you know, 800 or so vertical wells a year, and you could make a difference for the company. You could really move the needle by making a, you know, a half a percent change in the way that we were doing business, doing the same thing over and over. Um, there weren't a lot of people looking at things from a, a technical data-driven uh, methodology and so I was able to come in and kind of make my mark a few different ways and have a lot of fun helping just to make improvement and you could see at the end of the year the you know result of the work that you put in and then fast forward to 2016 not only is the pace fast and we have a ton more people um, doing a lot more things I was you know did did some management there and, and also did some senior level tech stuff uh, trying to answer some of the more critical questions that we had then about spacing and stacking questions that we're still trying to find the answers to. And just the job became something different. Not only was it difficult to move the needle, but the day was filled up with six to eight hours worth of meetings. So any real work had to go on outside of normal business hours. And most of our time, most of my time was spent just dealing with people, not getting to do the oil and gas work that I wanted to be doing in the first place but dealing with political situations or getting this group to work with my group or these two groups to get along so I you know, could use them. And 
Uh, part of it was the vertical integration of the company. Part of it was just the natural life stage of the company. It required more of a co corporate skill set. They still have a lot of great engineers and geologists over there, but the job description just changed. And so um, whenever the opportunity arose to, um, you know, take a jump, take a leap into the entrepreneurial world where we get to try something on our own, um, it, it was really appealing on, on a lot of levels. Right. And so... <clears throat> You know, you guys are. First of all, how did you guys meet? And then, you know, give me give us a quick background on the discussion of, you know, let's start Driftwood, let's do something different. You know, how did that all go down? Yeah, so you know, we met. Uh, we worked at a previous company together, uh, part of the management team at Accelerate. And part of that thought process was we loved the Midland Basin. We knew it, um, but it's you know the prices were high, and one way we knew we could buy in was on the non-op side, and you know. Frankly, after uh, doing that for a couple years, as an engineer, I was ready to, to get back to drilling wells again. That's Once again, that's what I loved. And, uh, and we had the opportunity to do that. And, and Kenny was like-minded and, and a couple other people from, uh, from that venture. And so we were able to spin off and, and do start up and operate a company. And, and we realized really quickly, I think Kenny and I did, um, whenever we met and were working at the first company, just that we thought similarly, that we had you know, similar, similar reasons why we were working and, and, and our thought processes meshed well. Um, I'm more optimistic. Kenny can you know, be cynical and the devil's advocate. Uh, no, <laughs> but that, that, that's a good balance. That's, that's a healthy thing. Yeah, and, and I wouldn't call him cynical, but, um, but I think our, our thought- called me cynical. Maybe he says realist. He's a realist. He's a realist. Yeah. That's exactly what I'm saying. a realist. Exactly, yeah. But I think our thought process can mesh well in, in areas like that, plus just the difference in backgrounds, finance, and, and engineering. Neither one of us understand every piece that goes into the puzzle. And so I, I think that's why you know we wanted to uh, partner up with you know the other two guys, uh, Brent Clark and, and Tom Dean, that we started Driftwood with. We started as a company of, of you know four equal partners, we all four have a say into how we run the business. And even though, you know, Kenny and I, somebody has to have the, um, you know, the, the CEO or the business leader title, and, and we even chose to, to split that. And it was even actually, you know, Kenny's decision uh, to mention um, that he wanted to do something like that. And, but it is the four of us leading the business. And, and I think the same thing of, you know, none of us understand all the pieces of the puzzle and geology and land are still a very big piece of that. And, uh, and I think our team is, is as strong or stronger than any team I've seen before because of the strength of the four disciplines that we bring. But that's a little bit. Can you want to add anything about that, you know, how we came to start Driftwood and all that? No, I think that was pretty good. I'm still stewing on your cynic insult. You know, I, yeah, it's okay. My wife and I have the same battle. <laughs> it's realist. you got to say realist. Realist. Uh, but so the Driftwood name, I'm always curious about how people come up with their names. You know, obviously it's an energy company, so it's got to have resources or energies or, you know, something in base. But Driftwood, how did you guys come up with the name? Uh, do you want to start with the esoteric reason or the real reason? Just go ahead. Okay, well, so the real reason is, and I'm sure uh, anyone listening that's looked at energy company names can relate, it is insanely difficult to find an innocuous energy-related name uh, that's not already taken. So... Grew up in a neighborhood called Green Tree. Every street is named after either a type of wood or a type of tree. And so when we were coming up blank on names, I just wrote out all the names of the streets in this neighborhood. And we just kind of picked one that wasn't already taken, which was Driftwood. And I think it, I mean, it's, I like it a lot, but um, I'll let Mickey give the esoteric reason. The reason that we, 
the reason that we tell people all that now, obviously, it's out. But go ahead. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> go ahead with the real with the with the quote unquote real reason. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it also fits with our our strategy, which is to go back to kind of leftover, stigmatized assets that a lot of people think were already picked over and, and disproven to be good investment opportunities, which would be the Southern Midland Basin. Um, that's exactly where we were planning on starting our company. So, with a, a philosophy of recognizing the value of driftwood whether it's you know, in, a, in a house remodel or just new art or whatever, driftwood has new value in today's day and age and it's been repurposed from its original purpose. And, uh, and, and that's what we're in the business to do, to go extract value from what otherwise might've been just driftwood acreage. So it's serendipitous because the name actually ends up fitting the business model um, and what we wanted to do. But, and you said that much more eloquently. Yes, that was, that was so, a beautiful explanation. So you can cut that first part if you want, but yeah, my <laughs> advice to anyone uh, in terms of, uh, of uh, finding a name is just, you know, list out a bunch of them and then come up with the reason I, I like the street name. If, that, if I would have done that, it would have been AltaVista Alta uh, Energy. Well, we're not the only ones. I mean, you got Colgate out there. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, the Colgate. There was yeah. a street. That's right. Pearl. I think that's why they named Pearl. Yeah, Pearl Street. Yeah, uh, that's right. Uh, where they're building. It works. Yeah, that's right. Um, okay, so, you know, give us a dynamic of the drift, Driftwood team. I mean, what's your mentality? Keeping lean, leveraging outsourced groups. I mean, what's, what is uh, the strategy? I know you guys wear a lot of hats. You may be CEO, but it's not like you're – you know, excluding yourself from, you know, putting in the hard work? Yeah, I'd say the first thing is we're just extremely horizontal. Um, I, there's there's very little, if any, information that's not shared with everybody within the company. And that's if we're looking at a deal, that's, if you know, of course, Wells Production and, and different company strategies. Um, everybody there is empowered. You know, we, we don't have time to train anybody, really. And so we, we try to get the right people on the team so that we can just let them know what our objective is and then they, they're able to just run and do the things that they need to do on a day-to-day basis. So, you know, if, if there's a leadership uh, leadership philosophy at work at Driftwood, it would just have to be something like laissez-faire of, you know, it's, and it's not laissez-faire, it's, we, we, all, we all agree on the direction that we're going, but we also trust each other to get there. And, and like I said, that starts from having the right people on the bus to begin with. Nick and Wes and Jonna and Brock are all, in, you know, instrumental in there. I was just able to name, you know, most of the company. Um, but just everybody has a significant role at the company and they understand the significance of what they do every day. And we're able to let everybody kind of uh, attack their job as they see fit and, and make it what they need it to be. And then we still meet up periodically, weekly, uh, when needed to discuss the direction we're going and the things that need to get done. You know, we make sure that there's some mutual accountability there. But it's a really fun work environment, and it's really the, the environment that I think I know I always dreamed of having, and that includes some flexibility during the work week and, and just kind of that mutual trust that allows us to cover a ton of ground while having a lot of fun at the same time. Yeah, I would say it's the flattest company I've ever worked at, and that includes RSP, which we took public for a couple billion dollars with like 35 employees. So, um, you know, I think it, it's it's been a unique experience so far. The challenge we have going forward is to continue to hire, you know, people that are all stars that can kind of work in that environment and be self-sufficient. But it's been great so far. Right. And so, you know, Kenny, love to get your perspective. <clears throat> you've been on the private equity side, you've been public company side, now you're a private equity backed company. Uh, you know, looking at your crystal ball, you know, how do you see the upstream space evolving over the next few years? Specifically, you know, private equity backed teams. I mean, how are they going to have to 
evolve and change? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, you know, I, my crystal ball, which is probably wrong, would be, and maybe this is, you know, a, a universal take is, you know, really big or really small um, plays pretty well. So I think, you know, the, the smaller fun space and kind of the space that we sit in with Carnelian as a backer and other companies of similar commitment size, there's a, there's a place to play in that realm um, because you can be more selective and you can buy smaller deals and make things really accretive on a dollar by dollar basis and it doesn't take scale to, or you, you don't have to step in at scale to get to where you want to go. Um, and then on the other side, I think, you know, I think this is probably the general consensus now is that you know, teams are going to have to be ready to operate and drill. And, and so that probably means larger commitments in general with operated, you know, teams that are ready to operate that are kind of fully built out. And that may mean fewer teams than in the past, but larger commitments, um, you know, and sort of high grading to the right teams and the right strategies and everything like that. So I think, you know, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out, but I think it, you know, in general, it, it seems like it's heading that direction. I think there's still a niche, you know, to where you don't have to necessarily be this super large private company that's running multiple rigs in the middle base, and there are a few of those that exist. I think there's still a space, you know, for our level of company that's putting together 10, 15,000 acres, you know, in basin and a core basin, um, you know, to still have an opportunity to go operate efficiently at a smaller scale and either monetize to you know, one of those larger private companies or sort of create an organic um, monetization by, you know, developing it enough to recap it or do something creative with the PDP. And I guess that's the other thing is obviously, you know, if acreage, <clears throat> you know, if it's no longer a buy and flip acreage model, um, you know, I think we'll see a lot of different variations of creative PDP monetizations in the near future, which it's not like we haven't been here before. I mean, where, where we're at now is not does not seem that crazy from where we were at 10, 8, 10 years ago in private equity. Um, where we were doing kind of weird PDP structures like BPPs and stuff like that. I think you'll, you know, we'll, we'll figure out how to start to monetize. Obviously, the key is good operators, good assets. And I think it just starts to kind of high grade to that over being able to sort of lease and flip. And I don't think that's any sort of... Uh, yeah, you know, groundbreaking news, but that's kind of where I see it headed. And, and Mickey, I mean, you know, being so lean, <clears throat> what's been the biggest challenge at Driftwood since getting going, uh, you know, the drilling pro program going? Uh, have you guys kind of kept up and, and um, you know, with only eight full-time employees? Yeah, we, um, it, it's something that we planned from the beginning, and, and part of it is that everybody has a hand on an oar, you know, so uh, I'm still a completion engineer or a reservoir engineer um, almost every single day uh, for most of the day. And, and I love it, that's what I wanna do. And that's, we've also been able to bring, you know, as I mentioned, the right people on the bus, Nick, who is you know, a drilling engineer extraordinaire slash now petroleum and, and operations engineer in general. Um, we get the right people that are also able to have a wide bandwidth to handle a lot of different things. And, and I think that starts with loving what we do. Uh, I think everybody at Driftwood loves what they do and, and enjoys you know what they get to, to show up at the office to do every day um, but we've also been able to leverage uh, deep personal networks out in the field uh, both guys that I've been able to uh, work with or the work for me whenever I was at Pioneer as well as other contacts that have grown out through those relationships through the years so even though we may be some 30 and 40 somethings in the office 
um, running driftwood out in the field. We have a lot of uh, 40, 50, and 60-year-old men that have, that have seen it, and, and if they haven't seen it, then it probably doesn't happen very often. And so we've been able to leverage their expertise. Uh, we've had a few key consultants out in Midland and out in the field that have helped, helped us to get up to speed quickly on something whenever we need it. And I think it's helped uh, all of us. It's, 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 it's helped us to have the same nimbleness and, and while at the same time having the same depth that we need to have from a technical and operational side to, to do what we're doing, drilling these two mile long horizontal camp wells in, in West Texas. Perfect. Well, you know, now for the fun stuff. Let's get to some uh, 20 questions, speed round. Uh, these could be completely non-energy related, uh, but we'll have some fun with this. So, Kenny, if you weren't energy, what would you be doing for your dream job? Uh, I'd be a sports agent, but when I researched that uh, growing up, I decided, or I realized that that was unrealistic, but that's what I'd be. Jerry Maguire. That's right. Maybe yeah. Bob Sugar. I don't know. Not, not the rock. <laughs> not the rock from Ballers. Uh, <laughs> so Mickey, what about you? Man, I would just have to say, you know, I know of a couple, um, and and not to be a trite answer. This is just the truth. It's not as fun as, as Kenny's maybe, but um, just some way to give back to people. We have, you know, through our church, there's some clinics that allow anybody that doesn't have health insurance to come in and get free medical care. It's a minor emergency clinic that's fully staffed out. And man, just to work at a place like that every day to get to wake up and know that, yeah, today may be tough and I may sweat a little, but to see see what outreaches like that are able to do for people, I think I would just like to do something that more tangibly every single day allowed me to see a benefit being given back to somebody. So that, that would be my dream job. It's so, you know, this has kind of been a recent phenomenon, at least for me, but I, I feel like everyone in our age that's tied to the industry do you guys follow these uh, energy parody Twitter accounts, Mr. Skilling and Mr. Kostek, some of the other ones, whatever they are? Do you guys follow them? What do you think about all this? What do you think, um, you know, they're really going after some of the uh, big players in the industry. What are your thoughts? Yeah, uh, I do follow them on Twitter, and it's, it's entertaining to watch them. It's one of the reasons why uh, I read them. But also, I think it's healthy to keep, you know, a lot of times it, it does qualify as cynicism. Um, but a lot of times they're identifying an elephant in the room. So I think it's important that we at least process what they're saying because it helps us to run our business better. And it's, it's difficult to get true feedback or, or the contrary opinion, and they don't hesitate to give it. So, yes, I do, and I find a lot of benefit from it, even though I disagree with, with a lot of what's put out there. I like the memes that they put out. <laughs> some good gifts and some other uh, – so, no, I mean, I, I, I'm entertained by all of it, and I think there's a lot of truth to it, like Mickey said. And there are specific situations that I think deserve getting called out. I think that our industry has given, has tossed up a lot of low-hanging fruit and softballs over the last several years, and so there's a lot of to pick at. But, yeah, I mean, the universal cynicism probably is something I disagree with, but, I, you know, I, I think it's uh, – it's interesting to see the oil and gas industry of all industries have a uh, social media presence, that's for sure. So, Kenny, what's the last book you read? Oh, man. Um, or listen to audio. I don't know. Um, I was, uh, let's see, the last audio book I listened to was the Thinking Fast and Slow, the Kahneman uh, book, but on a nerdier fiction side, uh, the Red Rising series, which I think is Pierce Brown or something. It's like a science fiction whatever uh, like if anyone's looking for a good fiction series it's not bad okay Mickey uh, name an event that had a big impact on you or helped kind of mold who you are um, 
Man, um, let's see. So, I, I, you know, I think for me, um, yeah, it's hard to choose. And don't want to get too personal. But, uh, you know, I, I'll have to say um, probably high school football. And, and, and I don't want to say that just because we're in Texas and it's, it's the fall. But, um, you know, I had multiple dads growing up. And, and my dad passed away. The dad that was raising me passed away early on in high school. And then my high school football coach ended up being kind of a surrogate dad. He, was, he coached with my dad. And I just learned a lot and matured a lot through those years whenever I didn't have a father in the home. Just understanding what a man is, what responsibility looks like, what hard work is, and, and what the payoff for hard work is. And so, you know, not, not for the gridiron dreams of, you know, looking back and talking about, you know, how we're has-beens or anything like that. But really, that provided the growth that I needed through high school to prepare me to go out into the real world. Yeah, no, it's uh, a lot of great people shaped myself so I get that and, and one other thing I want to touch on so you also um, you know you and your wife uh, uh, you know I know have four kids and, and two um, are adopted uh, you want to live a little insight on that I think that's very impactful and, and uh, you know I know there's a, you know, a lot of people that can help that way too but you know what inspired you all to, to do that yeah absolutely so we're involved with this is whenever we're in Houston we're involved with the mission agency over in Kenya and saw a lot of the need over there in East Africa um, and just the orphan crisis coming out of the AIDS epidemics and poverty epidemics that were going on in East Africa and, and some famines. And we always talked about adopting later on after having some kids the old-fashioned way and then adopting later in life. And, and through a variety of circumstances, we weren't able to start our family whenever we were ready to. So we just decided and we both kind of had it laid on our hearts at the same time to do adoption first and so we started the process met some families met some kids and and learned that a lot of people when they go over to Africa to get their child immediately start the process to adopt their second and so we just started out going after two and we were able to get two siblings Mila and Bay and uh, we adopted them almost 10 years ago and it, it's just been amazing you know he was nine months old and, and she was five years old and it was just kind of like instant family you know just add just add the Fredericks and, but it is just an amazing opportunity for us to grow, to, to help a kid. And, and what we tell them is that, you know, adoption is part of my story, my family history. I've, I've had the same mom, but I was, I was adopted by my second father. Um, but we, we tell them what we did to help them was not bring them to America. It was to give them a mother and dad who was able to love them. And so, and we've had two other kids, Knox and Goldie, along the way, the old-fashioned way. Um, and, and I think we're done at four. But it, it's been a fun journey, and it really does – um, provide a lot of the why on, on why we work hard and, and why we do all the things we do in the industry and, and it's been a blast to, to allow them to walk along this journey with us. That's great and um, you know so Kenny um, <clears throat> you know you guys are hard charging you got eight people you're staying lean you know I'm sure you guys are all carrying a big load and, and, and working hard and so how do you uh, how do you tell the, tell the group how do you unwind how do you relax? Um McAllen 12, golf, and uh, crappy television, I guess. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't have any. I wish I could say, actually, my ideal answer here would be UT football, but that just has not been the case. Um, but we're hoping to get there. Um, but no, I mean, I think it, you know, I think as Mickey's alluded to a few times, a certain peace comes with, you know, sort of having laid out a vision, you know, sort of accomplished every step on the way to the vision and, and being able to sort of wait and see the fruits of your labor. And so it, you know, it hasn't, 
thankfully it hasn't been you know quite as stressful as it may look from the outside just given the good partners we've got and Nick Mickey Tom and Brent and um, and the Carnelian guys so nothing to complain about there Mickey who's your uh, biggest sports hero as a kid OU, um, I mean, Oklahoma, it's got to be someone. Oh, it wasn't OU. It's, it's an easy question to answer, though, and it's Barry Sanders. Barry Sanders? Oh, okay, <laughs> that's a good one. That's he, a good one. He was you. my that's a good hero that's growing up. Uh, retired early. you got to respect that. Uh, what about you, Kenny? Biggest sports hero as a kid? Uh, maybe Ken Griffey Jr. Ooh, the, probably Griffey the all-time Jr. great swing, baseball swing. I'm, I'm guessing, Could never replicate it. I'm guessing you have some of those upper deck uh, rookie cards. Yeah, one of them I thought was worth like 200 bucks or something, which was – gold mine to me when I was like eight. You know, there's yeah. a great documentary about how uh, Upper Deck on Netflix, it's random, but they uh, mass produced that one card and so yeah, flooded the market. Have, yeah. yeah, flooded the market. They were only producing that card rather than the whole set. Anyway. Well, uh, I've still got it somewhere in my parents' uh, house in a closet. So, What about, uh, what music are you listening to in your car, Kenny? Uh, these days I've been mostly listening to podcasts, but I... Uh, you know, some Texas country is basically my go-to um, these days. Maybe a little bit more Americana, like... Uh, you ever listen to Midland? That, that band? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Good stuff. I just oh, recently got turned on it now. And there's a couple other bands that have songs about Midland, like uh, uh, Tall City Blues. can't remember what that band is called. Uh, but, yeah, those kind, of, those kind of things. And then some, like, Americana, like Avid Brothers and stuff. Mickey, what's your most useless talent? Uh, you know, it's probably my talents on horseback. We were, we were laughing before, uh, played polo in college and got into that because I, I rodeoed earlier in college and, and swore off rodeo so I could try to graduate college and then had the opportunity to do something I knew I'd probably never be able to afford again, which is play polo. So it doesn't provide much benefit now, but it sure is a blast. Kenny, who had the most, uh, biggest impact on your career? Um, let's see. I'll give it to Steve Gray, uh, who was the CEO of RSP, who was a family friend from growing up and just, uh, no offense, Steve, but kind of like a crusty engineer type, uh, obviously knew the commercial side really well, um, and had a lot of success in his career, but I remember getting there as this young finance guy and showing him all my financial models and spreadsheets and all these different scenarios. And he just flat out told me at one point, like, I don't care what your spreadsheet says. Like, this is not, you know, reality. And honestly, it ended up, you know, sort of becoming, you know, obviously that's just one anecdote, but sort of how I've kind of morphed from a guy that lives in the uh, financial spreadsheets to, you know, a- appreciating the larger business context and technical context of things. And, and I would say Steve is a, a pretty good leader. And obviously the successful RSP outcome is uh, reflective of his business acumen. So... Um, probably one of my favorite bosses and mentors that I've had. And, and Mickey, would you rather skydive or run with the bulls, or have you done either? I've not done either, and it'd definitely be skydive. Uh, skydive? Yeah, absolutely. Have you bungee jump? No, I haven't. Okay, I haven't done either either. But uh, I'm trying to get my wife to let me uh, run with the bulls for my 40th. We'll see. Oh, nice. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say 10 years ago, run with the bulls. Now, skydive. Yeah, because yeah. I'm not confident in my ability. To I've, I've been punctured and stomped on by bulls multiple times, and so uh, I've, I've checked that box. Okay, uh, I don't want to let my wife to listen to this podcast. <laughs> uh, okay, um, Mickey, what's your favorite hobby? Um, boring on that front, reading and, and jogging. Okay. And uh, Kenny, what show, TV shows are you binging these days? 
Uh, we recently started Mindhunter. Uh, my wife got me into uh, Guilty Pleasure Southern Charm, um, which is like a real Housewives, like <laughs> South Carolina type situation. It's wild. You stuff. know, uh, on the last Energy Executive podcast, Brandon admitted that he likes um, reality uh, romantic TV shows like uh, Bachelor? The Bachelor. So uh, I gotta watch the Bachelor. Yeah. Well, I'm. I willingly, Hillary, I willingly watch The Bachelor every Monday, including Bachelor in Paradise, which is actually pretty good TV. <laughs> and actually, one of my guilty, my guiltiest pleasure is The Challenge, MTV's The Challenge. Oh, is, like the real world is, is The Miz things. still on that? Or? Miz is no longer on okay. it, but there are some, some real uh, old school folks still on it. Um, but yeah, and then all the other Netflix and Hulu and other quality television too i don't just watch trash uh okay mickey if you could go to any city or take any trip in the world what, what would it be yeah there's a place in switzerland that jessica my wife and i love and that's lauterbrunn in switzerland up in the mountains uh, amazing piece of the earth awesome so have you, you guys have been there several times once or twice or? we actually just went back for our second time this awesome. summer i'm turning 40 and so we did it kind of as an early 40th birthday celebration and go there every year if we could Awesome. So, Kenny, you mentioned you listen to podcasts. What, you know, what, what podcast is Kenny listening to? Um, I guess one of the more rel- well, I listen to a, a lot of podcasts that probably aren't even worth mentioning. But uh, one of the ones I listen to that you know I find informative is, and it's a cheesy name, but it's called "Invest Like the Best." It's uh, by Patrick O'Shaughnessy, um, and I think their company's called O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. But brings on a lot of, um, <clears throat> you know value investors, venture capital investors, people from sort of all walks of life. They've had a couple episodes even with uh, energy-focused investors. But it's just interesting to kind of get a perspective on how investors outside of the energy space, both on the public and private side, think. And I think there are actually, you know, some interesting parallels to be gained from, you know, what the sort of investing thesis looks like on the Silicon Valley venture capital side relative to ours, even though huge difference in capital intensity, but not as much of a difference in terms of business maturity as you sort of go through the life cycle. So anyways, I'm, that that's the one I'd recommend. Invest like the best. Invest like called. the best. I'll have to check that out. Um, so, you know, we got four kids, Mickey. Uh, you know, I think about this a lot. I got two girls, six and four. You know, I'm in the CPA. My wife's a, a lawyer. So, you know, I always worry about, you know, what's their profession going to be? You know, if I could pick it when they grow up, I feel like they're going to gravitate anti anything like that, and they probably you know want to be you know artists or, or dancers or whatever. But you know, so I think about you know what, if I could pick their their career and help push them away, you know, what would that be? And, and so, have you thought about that? And what do you think you'd push your kids towards? Yeah, I mean, I think the first place I'd start is is whatever they love, because um, I think we've probably all seen in, in our own careers the things that we excel at the most are the ones that we wake up excited to do in the morning. And we get to do what we love every day, and so that's a huge advantage. But you know, the second you know, if I was able to steer and 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 help them dive into something that they might love, I would say uh, engineering, and not just because you know, uh, inside in part because I've gotten to see the inside of the engineering profession and just how versatile an engineering education is. Um, because a lot of us don't know what we want to do whenever we get out of college, and and it just gives you the uh, a great amount of flexibility to go into a, a ton of different industries. And, um, and do a, a lot of different things, even mid-career, late-career. And it also has the component of computers and technology in it as well, the programming aspects as well as some of the hardware aspects. 
there's just a lot of room to flex and grow with what is going to be a crazy environment, a crazy economy for our, our kids to figure out how to plug into. Uh, Kenny, if you could have dinner with anyone dead or alive, who would it be? Uh, uh, Teddy Roosevelt. And Mickey, uh, if you could look back and tell 22-year-old 22 22-year-old 22 Mickey anything, what was the, what's the one thing you'd uh, give yourself advice on? You know, I think it would just be just work hard every day at, at what I have to do and to make sure at each step along the way to master everything that I can because it's difficult to go back and pick up uh, the pieces later on in life. For instance, the books that we read in high school still benefit me greatly, the ones I actually read, but it's too late now for me to go read the other classics that I wish I would have had time for. It's not too late, but it's difficult to do later in, in, in life, and it's difficult in the same way with an engineering career to go back and relearn stuff that I should have learned better the first time. I think just taking advantage of every opportunity that's in front of us really helps prepare us for whatever's around the corner. And Kenny, if you uh, do you have one movie that no matter what, if it comes on, you stop down, you can watch it over and over? Uh, yeah, probably a Shawshank Redemption. Uh, or A Few Good Men, or Good Will Hunting, or The Replacements, best sports movie ever. Replacements, nice. <laughs> I, did, I could not have re predicted that. I like it. Uh, Mickey, what's uh, your worst bad habit? Chewing my fingernails. Okay, Born. that's a good one. That's a good one. <laughs> uh, Kenny, you know, who in the industry, maybe you haven't worked with them, but who do you respect the most, or, you know... If you look towards uh, their advice or what they're saying or what's going on, is there is there someone you can kind of point to? Uh, I'll try to keep it quick, but I think the you know what I've been the the northeastern gas guys. I mean, in the Permian, we take for granted what kind of margins per unit per barrel we have, and those guys have been making a living for a long time. You know, trying to turn over cash flow, keep leverage metrics in line, and get cash flow positive with pretty skinny margins that, you know, 10 cents on dollar per MCF matters. And so I think, you know, they've obviously done a lot of work that we haven't gotten around to doing yet in some of these oil plays where we're taking some time to get back to cash flow positive. So I think they've done good. And then there are some companies and CEOs, you know, in our part of the world in the Permian that I think have done great. I think Diamondback's a good example of a company that's always been nimble and done, you know, had made sure they had a lot of levers to pull at any given time to add value. So I guess Travis Dice on that side is, is pretty impressive. And then, like I said, the the guys that have been operating kind of Northeastern gas stuff for a while and, and made a pretty good business out of, you know, without the natural advantages that we've had in some of the parts of the Permian. What about you, Mickey? What was the question again? Uh, who do you, if you know, in the industry, you know, maybe you don't know them, but who do you respect, have the most respect for, or who do you just kind of like, wow, you know, what they're doing or what they've done is or how they handle themselves. Um, yeah, so there's there's a guy. I just want to make sure I heard the question um, right. Appreciate that. A guy here in Dallas local named Kyle Thompson. Uh, he's been a mentor uh, for me over about the last 10 years, and he's been involved with a lot of projects around here from the Barnett days on, uh, both through a company that he was helping to lead you know, back in the 80s and 90s and then through different uh, investments that, that everybody would know about since then. Um, but he just the way that he leads his life, leads himself, leads his family, um, he's been extremely successful and is, is very careful to steward all those opportunities for, for things that last. And, and he, you know, it's a guy that you can clearly see has been very successful, but his life still isn't about just stacking up all the treasure. 
that he can because of the people that he gets to pour into. So, I mean, I would say that from a personal side, I know him. I, I think from an industry side, I'm intrigued by EOG and how they organize their company to continue to uh, just provide some of the best results in the industry where they have business units that are competitive, but it's still one company. Um, and to see how they drive innovation and, and learn quickly. I think they've advanced up the learning curve in, in so many different basins uh, faster than any other company that I've ever seen. And they also have a way to explore a bunch of other plays that we never hear about because they, they, if they're gonna fail, they make sure to fail fast with as small ante as possible. And I think that we're gonna have to get good at doing all those things again as an industry. And I, I just, every time I can, I, I try to talk to guys or friends that are working over there to just try to understand how they create that culture and how they keep that same level of excellence. I think we have a lot we can learn from them. That's great. Well, I pre really appreciate you guys coming on. This is great. Um, you know, we love having you guys as clients and, and it's been enjoyable spending some time with you. So, you know, here's a great question. Who should I interview next for this series? Kenny? Call uh, somebody out. Let's get No, I think Mickey's got an answer for it already. Okay. Yeah, my answer would be Will Hickey. Oh, Will Hickey, yeah, yeah. Out in you know, Will Hickey knocked me out in the World Oil Man's Poker Tournament, so I can uh, I can call him. Yeah. I think he went on to win it, right? Uh, you got him. That's right. He's on the hook. That's and, right. And, right. and I want, I want to hear his answers because every time I talk to him, I got to work with him at Pioneer and, okay. and we're friends. But uh, every time I talk to him, he has a well-reasoned, thought-out answer that I had not yeah. thought about before, and it's usually a little bit off – off the middle of the road answer and so yeah i like that well you were calling him out and I'll, I'll reach out to will and see if i can get him on uh, that'd be a lot of fun uh well i appreciate your time guys and uh that's all for now and we'll uh we'll, we'll see you guys next time thanks <laughs>